0: All right, good morning. It's a glorious spring day. And for those of you who know me, you know why spring is my favorite time of the year. And uh, if you're new here, come after me and I'll tell you why. May give you a little hint later, but man, I love me some springtime. Somebody say amen. Well, it is always good, as we did this morning, to speak of God's faithfulness. Uh, financially, materially speaking, and it is good to speak off God's faithfulness to us spiritually. And uh, what a great uh, thing that is, because what it does is when we look back at God's faithfulness, it becomes a springboard in which we can trust him for an uncertain future. Uh, Look back in the past to trust him for the future. In light of that, let's continue to do that this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians 4 as we continue there. And uh, uh, verses 30 through 32. So this past Tuesday night, uh, after our staff meetings, about 2.30, I drove down to Chattanooga there at the Marriott Hotel downtown. And I spoke to about 80 or 90 pastors and their wives on behalf of Family Life. My, My role that night was... Uh, Basically, encouragement for pastors. And um, I did a talk entitled Keeping the Main Things the Main Things. Uh, There were four profound but simple points. Not profound because I came up with them. Just because they're profound. They're biblical. Uh, But they're simple. And they were from the heart. Things that have encouraged me as a pastor. So the first point was keep the gospel first. You've heard me speak of that. And its implications, the second one was fight for biblical joy. The third point was an exhortation based on John Piper's great book to pastors. Brothers, we are not professionals. (laughs) We are heralds of great news for great sinners. And the fourth one was, as pastors, we really have to work hard at winning at home. And much to have to do with that how is how churches set up structures for a pastor to be able to do that. Uh, nothing profound happened. It was a great evening, dinner, response. I was surprised, however, afterwards, it being 8.30 at night, uh, how many people hung around? A line of pastors and their wives. And what surprised me even more, maybe, was story after story after story of how discouraged they were. And how tired they were. And the vast majority of everything I heard from the pastors and their wives that night, in many different forms, could be summed up in the sins that Paul was speaking about amongst the church body from its people in Ephesians 4. Disunity in the body was killing them and their spouses. Which is exactly what Paul says it will do. Ephesians 4, 27, it says it will give the devil a foothold in your life. But as John Orberg says, as frustrating as people can be, it's hard to find a good substitute. (laughs) That's why we've got to, as a church body, apply these truths in Ephesians 4. If we're going to walk with Christ well. But... As you are well aware of, it's not only the congregants and the parishioners that have a problem. It's us pastors too. And it's me, and it's a lot of horrific stories that you're all well aware of, of pastors destroying church bodies. Here's what Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said about himself. He said, my own experience is daily struggle with the evil within. I wish I could find in myself something friendly to grace, but I have searched my nature through and have found everything in rebellion naturally against God, like sloth, anger, pride, and distrust, distrusting God. I thought, yeah, me too, Spurgeon. Man, in some ways, that was very comforting. In other ways, the reality is painful. And I thought, everyone is normal until you really get to know them. And then when you really get to know them, you know, ain't nobody. And the word ain't there is a Greek word for emphasis. I want you to know that. It's a Southern Greek word. <clears throat> but ain't nobody got it together. Ain't nobody that doesn't struggle with sin. Ain't, ain't ain't nobody, double negative, negative, that doesn't need help. Not a pastor, not a congregant, no one out there that does not need to mature and grow in these crucial unifying Christian character virtues and traits. As much as you and I love Fellowship Bible Church, and that's an assumption I'm making that's, I think, fairly true, let's not fool ourselves that you and I cannot in some way, form, or fashion ruin what God has so graciously built. Because we sure can by not applying the truths in Ephesians chapter 4. The reason I know that is I've heard stories from you about many churches that you've come from that you were hurt deeply in. And I also have heard stories and know myself that sometimes I'm on the side and you're on the side doing the hurting, Right? So let's really have some big ears this morning. Add to this, these truths applied, just a, a note here, these truths applied or not applied, they really can affect the environment in your marriage, in your home, and in your relationships, and anywhere, obviously, that you go. What theologians call these is practical Christian living. And, and Monty started last week. He titled his sermon, How to Live Like a Good Neighbor. And so this is Living Like a Good Neighbor, part two. And the reason we're doing that is because starting in verse 25 through 32 is really a list of what <clears throat> it means to live like a good neighbor. Monty took the half list, and I'm taking the rest of it. So uh, as, before we jump in the text, let's do a quick review, though. Context and review, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 is walking worthy in unity. This chapter is all about unity in the body. And since verse 25, Paul has said some very, very simple things that turn out to be really hard to do day in and day out. I want you to think about how sinful we really are. Paul says, do not lie. And we're like, anybody here ever lied? How about this week? About this morning, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. But it's those kind of things that ruin the body. Paul is saying that the new man is to replace the old man. He has been saying since verse 25 that falsehood needs to be replaced with truth. That we need to replace raging anger with godly, righteous anger that we need to replace stealing with working and giving and destructive speech with constructive speech. Speaking of speech, which a lot of these uh, sins that he lists here, in some way, form, or fashion, eventually find their way out in our tongue. Washington Irving put it this way, the tongue is the only tool that gets sharper with use. Somebody say amen to that, right? So what is next on the list for Paul? I think today we want to ask three and answer three questions uh, because that will inform us of what is next on the list. First question is, is God frowning or smiling? We'll unpack that. Second question is, am I taking this old way and shoving it? And you're probably thinking, where'd you get that? Well, I can't help what comes through my mind. But as I was studying this week, Verse 31, every time I read verse 31, I kept thinking of that old song, take this job and shove it, It ain't working here no more, right? And I think that's what Paul wants, take these sins and shove them and don't live like that anymore, so that's verse 31. And then, am I engaging in the journey of becoming, verse 32. So, let's unpack that. First question, is God frowning? Or smiling. Let me read verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Before we jump in here, I think it is healthy for us to be reminded that spiritual realities form ultimate realities. Spiritual realities form ultimate realities in this way. Paul tells us earlier in the text, be angry and do not sin. <clears throat> and what he's saying here is that's just not a, a, a sense of you blowing your fuse or saying something that you should not say. He's saying, but instead it tells us there's something spiritual going on behind the scenes in the unseen. And he tells us that, as I mentioned earlier, Ephesians 4.27, it allows the devil to get a foothold. So... There's the spiritual reality behind the physical reality. And then again in verse 30, Paul says that the greater spiritual reality is when we live out our old way, the old man or old woman, we grieve the spirit of God. So we see something externally. And Paul's saying every time we see something externally behind the scenes here, there's something going on spiritually. And he names that, that the grieving of the Spirit of God is happening. In some ways, Paul saw that the act of the sin in the here and now is always happening in the spiritual realm. So what does it even mean to grieve the Spirit of God? Well, this word, grieve, it is a strong word. It is the word used of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross as he sweat drops of blood to describe what was going on in him. The implications are this. Do not cause pain or sorrow to the Holy Spirit. And here's why. The Holy Spirit is a person. There's a fact here. You cannot grieve a force. You cannot grieve a principle. You cannot grieve an influence. You can only grieve a person. Only people can grieve. So we know this, that the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is the Spirit of the living God. And we know from the scriptures that God, our God, has emotions. Just this week in the Bible reading plan that I hope you're taking part in, even though you fall behind, we're a day or two behind. Keep going. But Monty, knowing I was teaching this text, texted me this text from Genesis 6, and then Jen and I read it that actual night. It goes like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it grieved him to his heart. In some ways, Paul's statement here about the Holy Spirit God being grieved, the spirit of God being grieved, it's remarkable in the sense that the Holy Spirit enters our lives at the very moment we come to Christ, at the very salvific moment. And think about this. He does so knowing that he will yield his entire life to live in us with great pain and grief and sorrow. And he still does, and he stays. How many of us would yield ourselves to be in a relationship with another person when we know it's going to be a lifetime of pain and grief, and we never, ever leave? I'm not even saying we should do that. I'm just saying think about that. Theologians have called the Holy Spirit in this case sovereignly vulnerable. The Holy Spirit is a real person. He is in a real relationship with you and I. And what we need to remember is He is called Holy Spirit for a reason because it is Him that is holy, not us. (laughs) So it is Him that will always be grieving. The Holy Spirit is grieved certainly by any unholiness. But in our context of Ephesians 4, What is grieving the Holy Spirit is disunity in the church. He is the author of the word. That's why he says he is the sword of the spirit. So rebellion against the word of God grieves him, and it's really no small thing. Paul then mentions this phrase on the back half there. He says, "...by whom you were sealed." There are really two other main texts that Paul addresses this ministry, if you would, of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the doctrine of the Spirit of God. Uh, Ephesians 1.13, we read that when we taught taught that back in the day. It says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and then again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, And it is God who established us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what Paul does in these two instances and in our text, he uses this word seal because it was a very common word used back in the ancient world. It, it had this idea of using a, what they called a signet or a ring that was used to make a seal, and it would make a mark on something that that would show what was that seal was about. An example would be with me. <clears throat> Let's say, uh, y'all don't know this, some of y'all don't know this, my name is Randolph Jefferson Patton. Now, when I was born, the doctor told my mom that's enough name to kill the little fella. Uh, <laughs> I always thought I should be either the name of a high school, right, or the president of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But let's say I took a ring and I had someone create a ring with big letters R-J-P on it. It, it. I took that ring and I rolled it over a piece of warm wax or a piece of clay, and that would indicate that that was my... Uh, uh, seal if you would that belonged to me it would certainly uh, communicate legal and moral authority of Jeff Patton I just like how that sounds the legal and moral authority of Randolph Jefferson Patton maybe I'll write a book on that one day but here's what would happen is the craftsman who created that ring They couldn't even, by law, keep the ring in case of fraud. Like, it it was a big deal. And think about it. We still do this today. If you're a cattleman and you have a cattle ranch, what do you do? You put your seal or brand on the cattle, right? If you get a document notarized by a bank or some other institution That signifies moral and legal authority. So it's not a new concept. This word seal I looked up has been used 32 times in the New Testament, 22 of them in the book of Revelations. And when in Revelations it says that the seal was opened, the word of God was handed to the lamb. He and he alone is the only one that can break that seal. Another example would be Matthew 27 where Uh, Pontius Pilate had the tomb of Jesus sealed, it says. Well, it, it wasn't sealed with chains or some kind of blockade there. It was sealed with his stamp, if you would. And what it signified was this tomb belongs to the governor, Pontius Pilate. So here in Ephesians 4.30, Paul wants us to know this, that the Holy Spirit is the divine signet ring That seals his imprint upon the true believer. And there are at least three incredible theological truths. The first one is this. The seal of the Spirit is the mark of ownership. Here's how Paul puts that in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God... You are not your own. Here's the reason. For you were bought with a price. First Peter tells us that price was the precious shed blood of the Lord Jesus. So glorify God in your body. Years ago, Monty, I think we did a whole series, but he named it. Monty names most of our series. I think I've done one in 19 years. I was so happy I finally got something right, you know? But we named it Yanyo. How many of you remember that? What does it stand for? You are not your own. own. Thank you, John, the patriarch of Fellowship Bible Church. (laughs) Comes through again for us. And what that says is that you and I have been personally purchased by King Jesus. So when we were converted, God graciously brands you and I with his spirit. Second truth is it marks us with an identity and an authenticity. It says we really are a child of God because if we don't have the seal of the Holy Spirit, we do not belong to him. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8 9. He says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Pretty straightforward. And then the third great truth <clears throat> is it is a mark of security and protection and I so love this it tells us that the Holy Spirit guarantees and promises that you and I will persevere to the end and we talked all about that as we study the book of Hebrews everybody remembers Peter right remember Peter I love Peter the Apostle I am so much like Peter the Apostle it's a it's a great gift and it's a great curse you know Peter he, he either hit home runs or he struck out And that's sort of the story of my whole life. But remember him when Jesus told him, Satan asks for permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, F-A-I-L. We know that Peter fell, F-E-L-L. But ultimately, and he fell horribly, but Peter did not fail, F-A-I-L. I-L, his faith. The reason, he persevered to the end. It ought to be a great encouragement to us. He died well. He finished strong. And we know that because as they said, renounce Christ or we're going to kill you. He said, can't do it. He said, then we're going to crucify you. He said, that's fine. Just when you do, turn me upside down. I am not worthy to die like my Lord. Ultimately, though, grief, here's what we need to take away, is related to love because it's impossible to grieve someone who does not love you. Grief is always an indication of the presence of love. And folks, it is never, it is never the wrong time to tell the body of Christ that God in Christ loves you. Verse 30b, he finishes this verse, he says, for the day of redemption. And here's what Paul's doing here. He's telling us that it is the Holy Spirit sealed for us the day of the coming of Christ till the judgment when Jesus returns as Savior and King. And here's what he does. He judges those that have no seal of the Holy Spirit. And he gathers to himself in celebration those who do have the seal. Martin Lord Jones puts it like this. He says, let us be clear about this doctrine. The Spirit never abandons the child of God. No man can break the seal. Even the devil of hell cannot break it. Those who God saves, he saves good. And then Martin Lord Jones says, real good. Somebody say amen. Amen. Paul's intent here is to motivate real Christians to not grieve the Holy Spirit. To motivate us to live holy lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about this. In this command, there's no threat. There's no shame. Paul is saying, don't grieve the Spirit that is protecting you, persevering you, strengthening you befriending you this spirit marks you his to the last day and it is the spirit that will usher us ultimately into the presence of Christ himself he is your divine guest Paul is telling us and yes at times we do grieve him but here's what's beautiful and will make us sin less, there's nobody that's already in heaven that's more secure than you and I that are still here because of this sealing of the Spirit of God. Wayne Grudem puts it very practically in the quotes in your notes. He says, when we grieve the Holy Spirit through wrong living, communal life is disrupted. Church life is uh, is disrupted. Relationships are disrupted. In the church and out of the church, but for our purpose, for he is the spirit of unity and dwelling and uniting all believers. Grudem summarizes in that quote all of chapter 4 of Ephesians. First question, is God frowning or smiling? Depends on if we're grieving the spirit of God through our petty human vices Or not. Second question. Am I taking this old way and shoving it? I just like how that sounds. Let me read verse thirty-one. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So here's what Paul is doing after motivating the believers in first in verse thirty, Paul lays out here six behaviors that you and I are to put off. All of them are selfish. All of them are sinful, and here's the reality of it. Ain't, ain't no doubt, I'm 100% correct here, every one of us has done at least one of them. I'd bet, I wouldn't bet my right arm, but I'd bet good money that all of us have done at least two of them. I bet the vast majority of us have done at least one of them this week, and there's I know a few of you did some this morning. I already got texts from your spouses. But he lays out six here. One is bitterness. It's resentment from unresolved hurt. It results from keeping score. And some have described it as this long-term, slow-burning hostility. John Ortberg describes bitterness like this. It's like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Wrath comes from the word "bull." Now, that's how I say. How y'all say "bull"? Bull, Oil? boy, all the same to me, right? Raging against another person, anger, a settled attitude, often with the purpose of revenge. Clamor is, and man, this is just everywhere in our culture. Fighting with loud words, screaming, aimed at getting one's own way. Slander is speaking against someone to another. Uh, to get someone, uh, to get another trying to damage their reputation. It's gossip, it's rumors, it's, it's, it's done in the name of prayer in churches. We talk about somebody so we can pray about them. And then lastly, malice, our general term for anything that means ill will toward another person. It's really saying they deserve what they deserve. They need to get what they deserve. So it is to these things that I said a few weeks ago and other things he's listed here that we are to, remember, die. We put off the old man, we die. We renew our minds because sin ultimately at the end of the day, foundationally speaking, is the malfunction of the mind, and then we rise in a new way with Christ. And that process is not a one-time event. Remember, tens of thousands of times as we grow in Christ. Just for those of you who are more internal in nature, meaning I'm more external, and you see my stuff, and I'm going to share some of that as we go, but there's some of us are just wired different. We're internal in nature. I live with one of those wired different people. <laughs> and, uh, man, we make an odd couple but a good couple, right? But all of these things, the vast majority of these things in Ephesians 4 can also be lived out internally like you they may not see it but it's killing you versus killing other people it's the exact story of my brother and I based on our temperaments so that still grieves the Holy Spirit and and I think it's important for us to hear that especially for those of us who are more internal in nature. So Paul is saying these things in this whole list, including 30, 31, and 32, are, or in verse 31, are humans' natural vices. They're all relational in nature. We know these ruin relationships. We know they ruin churches, homes, communities, friendships, and ultimately are witness to the world. Paul says, put it away. Put it away. But if you're honest, like me, sometimes I enjoy them. (laughs) Sometimes I want to put them away and then watch them crawl back up from where I put them. Crawl out of the closet, if you may. Some may think in your heart, don't you dare ask me what's going on in me. And if someone does do that, how are you really doing? What do they say in the church? fine. And they not fine. <laughs> Let me back up a minute and put some flesh on these. I'm your poster child for a lot of these sins that we've been speaking over the next last few weeks. It's it's why I've often referred to myself as a recovering rageaholic. And as I thought about sharing this, I've shared some of this in different venues, obviously, and some of you know, but I thought one of our values at Fellowship Bible Church is what you see is what you get. So we're about to apply our values this morning. So here goes. I came, as some of you know, from a raging alcoholic home. My dad was the alcoholic, but my mom was a rager, and I, she was so, she was a sober rager. I often thought years later that my dad drank primarily to numb himself from her wrath. That's how mean she was. There were no filters in our homes. All of these sins and more were on maximal level 24-7, screaming. Vile language, and it wasn't just vile language. It was personally directed at you. Violent hitting, slapping, belts whipping across the back of your neck, being beaten with brooms. And in my house, everybody was an idiot except for my mom and dad. My home, and I'm not blaming them for me. I am simply saying my home was a great, if you want to put it that way, training ground to how to survive in this crazy world. And so what I did as I got older, I fought back with them verbally and physically. There were several occasions that I slammed my father up against the wall or cabinet. I had learned well how to deal with with situations and people that when I did not get my way. All of this happening in our home while going to church every single Sunday in a pretty good church, doctrinally speaking. And so part of why I'm sharing that this morning, if it can happen there, it certainly can happen here. And I know, just because I know me and I know humans, that this is happening In many of your homes. And then I came to Christ at 19. It was a dramatic conversion. Nobody would have guessed. (laughs) Nobody. And for the next four years as I was discipled, much of what I'm speaking of did not show up. A few episodes here or there. But football was a great venue to hide pain and rage and intensity. I actually had coaches at times telling me, bro, you need to calm down. It's practice. And then I got married. Hmm. And it wasn't Jenna's fault. It was my fault. Year one of counseling, we're sitting in the counselor's office. I know exactly what he's doing because I do that now. He's asking a bunch of questions. He's taking notes. After about 45 minutes, he looks over at me and says, Jeff, do you think you have an anger problem? I said, no, I'm good, I'm good. I, I, I got a few episodes here and there, but I'm jolly old Jeff. And that's part of it, it's complex. It wasn't all the time, but there'd be those volcanic eruptions. And then over time, it starts boiling in another one. And you never knew why. And then he looks at my wife and said, Jenna, what about you? Do you think Jeff has an anger problem? And she starts crying. Nodding her head, yes. And I stood up without even recognizing, I said, what? I don't have a And I stopped like mid-sentence. And I was going, and I just sat down. And on the way home that day, I remember thinking for the first time, I have an anger problem. And Jenna was like, amen. I don't have time to tell you this morning, because my time is limited, obviously, to tell you the 36-year process of climbing out of what seemed insurmountable valleys. I often described it as having an episode of rage and then feeling like the Incredible Hulk. He sees all the destruction he caused. He doesn't know what happened. (laughs) And Darcy, the counselor, is looking at me. She's like, I know what happened. (laughs) But I'll tell you this I know I grieve the Spirit of God. And I know I hurt those closest to me. But, verse 32. the hope. Am I engaging in the journey of becoming? Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I found out something new this week that I didn't know that the word be there is actually the word become. Paul is literally saying, become kind to one another, become kind tenderhearted, it's a synonym for compassionate to one another and to become the kind of person that forgives like Christ forgave. Now you're talking about having hope. The reality is you and I cannot produce these kind of Christian character qualities, these if you would, supernatural virtues, because what we naturally produce is the natural vices, better listed in this deal. I saw a video this week of a, 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 is it vegan? Is that what it is? You eat vegan kind of food? I, that's not bad. I'm saying, anybody here a vegan? You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, we got some vegans back there. I, I'm a ketoan. I've been eating keto, right? But, but this gal, young gal was a vegan. She was talking about her diet and she said, Actually, dogs want to be vegans too, but we mess them up. And so she had a, a plate of salad and a plate of burger, hamburger. And she said, my dog's a vegan dog. He he loves salad and he won't even mess. With, like that's how God intended him. She was just just in this, I think, an unhealthy relationship with her dog. I'm just speculating, and so the, she's got the dog on a leash, and that dog rips out of the leash and jumps over to those two plates and just starts gobbling down the hamburger while she's going, oh, he really likes lettuce. He really likes lettuce, right? I say that because it's, it, we like that dog in the sense it's so natural to eat the hamburger and so unnatural to eat the lettuce, But here's what Paul knows. I don't know why it's funny. I thought it was a great illustration. I know y'all just fired up this morning. (laughs) Paul knows those things come so naturally. You know why he knows? Because he's a rager. He's a recovering rageaholic like me. You go back and look at his life. He knows it's also a process. It takes God's grace and truth and time. Nobody, there's no instant change in the Christian life. But the vision is clear. We must be the as the people. Of God, be kind, be tenderhearted and forgiving. If we don't want to grieve the spirit of God, and if we want unity in the church. So on the other side of that, I thought I'd put some more flesh on this sermon, in that what does what does it look like to become those things that Paul exhorts us to? And all I can do is tell you what it took for me and takes for me. There's got to be awareness of how others experience you. I found that out in my first counseling appointment. And I had many conversations with my wife and others Painful, but glorious. Certainly the Word of God, as I continue to get a clearer view of God, even what we talked about this morning, that the Spirit of God does not leave me. He should have left me, and He doesn't. Prayer, many a confused state of Lord Jesus. Help me. Godly people. Started at 27 years old, wish I had a dollar for forever conversation where I was talking about what's going on inside of me. Fifthly, resources that I have devoured and now I devour with other men. Some of those are on the bottom of your sheet. Many fallings like Peter, starting over and moving forward incrementally. Whereas the cumulative effect of two steps forward, three steps back is being recognized even now. Men who will correct me but still love me, many of them in this church. And, and look, still I have to take some drastic steps. There's, there are moments, I know what it feels like from episode to episode, time to time, to begin to build with this rage. I used to walk around with that feeling in my chest 24-7. But a couple times a year in conversations and circumstances, I begin to feel it build. And I will ask pleasantly to excuse myself from this conversation because I know I'm in danger. And people look at me like, what's wrong with you? I said, you don't want to know. That's why I love Philippians 1.6 where God says that he will complete in us what he started. And as I mentioned, I can help others now. That's the glorious thing about Christian ministry. (laughs) That's amazing. So I also always quote Romans 2.4. It is the kindness of God that leads you and I to repentance I know firsthand that God has been so kind to me. The older I get, in light of what I deserve, it's overwhelming to me. And then Paul wraps up this text with this phrase that I think we can tend to look over. And it is, forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. Amen, amen, go home, peace be with you, right? But I want to put some flesh on that for us this morning because this is so crucial for us. It's a true story that I think models to us what Paul is commanding us at the end of verse 32 to forgive like Christ forgave. Starts here. When the world sees grace in action, it falls silent. Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison after 27 years and being elected president of South Africa, he asked his jailer to join him on the inauguration platform. He then appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head an official government panel with a daunting name, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mandela sought to diffuse the natural pattern of revenge that he has seen in so many countries where one oppressed race or tribe took control over another or from another. For the next two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports of atrocities coming out of the TRC meeting hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman or any army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he cannot be tried and punished for that crime. Some hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting criminals go free. But Mandela insisted that the country needed healing even more than it needed justice. After one hearing, a policeman named Vanderbroek recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body, turning it on fire like a piece of barbecue meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Vandenbroek returned to the same house and seized the boy's father. The wife was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a woodpile, poured gas over his body, and ignited it. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had first lost her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vandenbroek? the judge asked. She said she wanted Vandenbroek to go to the place where they buried her husband's body and gather up the dust so she could give him a decent barrel. His head down. Mm. Policeman nodded in agreement. Then she added a further request. Mr. Vandenbroek took all of my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give because of Jesus Christ twice a month i would like for him to come to the ghetto where i live and spend a day with me so i can be a mom to him that he probably never had and i would like mr vanderbrock to know that he is a, he is forgiven by god and that i forgive him too and i would like to embrace him today to show him that my forgiveness is real spontaneously some in the courtroom begin singing amazing grace as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand but vanderbrock did not hear the hymn he had fainted overwhelmed by grace c.s lewis says this to be a christian means to forgive the inexcusable because god has forgiven the inexcusable in you and i understand that there's some situations that you can forgive, but not be in a relationship. I understand that. I understand there's situations where you're in a place you can't forgive right now. But eventually, at some point, for you to be able to move forward and understand the gospel in profound ways, you got to forgive. So this morning, the implication is twofold. It is, one, your confession to God. About your own sin. It's there, mine's there. What a gracious God that we have. And then, secondly, it's really an implication to go to those you love most, starting in your home with your spouse. Tell me about me. Unresolved hurts turn into big boulders, little pebbles turn into explosions. And begin having those conversations. And then, who in the church you got to go talk to? Like, this is the way churches are to live with each other. Take a minute. Ask and answer those questions. Stand with me this morning, if you would. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and um, if we're honest with ourselves, like I'm trying to be, as there were moments I felt ungiveable, unforgivable, and you say, no, that's not true. Hmm. I have forgiven all your sins and I'm pressing in upon you through my spirit. Although you're grieving me, I stand there and I say, you are mine, bought with a price. I will not give up on you. I will continue to form you into the image of my beloved son no matter what it takes. For that, I and we are grateful that you are more committed to our own holiness than we are ourselves. Lord, help us to be this kind of church that applies well, uh, these virtues uh, that we need to put on and live well with each other. And everyone said, amen.